You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he will be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace. By the blood of the cross, him we proclaim. Well, good morning again. I hope you're doing well. Um, If you're new or visiting with us, my name is Clint. I'm one of the guys on staff. And if you're getting tired of me, this is the last time for a while, okay? We'll get Bill back next week. The height goes down, preaching quality goes up. It's a a one-to-one ratio. Um, If you have a Bible, Colossians 3, that's where we're gonna be this morning. We are in week nine now of a a series working through this book, really this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing in prison to this group of people, this church, this gathering of Christians in Colossae. Um, And if you wanna boil down all that we've seen so far in this letter, Paul is saying this, Jesus is central to all of life. And I, and I emphasize the central there because in our community group this last week, um, somebody wrote down that Jesus is essential to all of life. And I was like, I didn't say that. I said central, okay? So apparently there's a huge lisp here coming through. Jesus is central to all of life. That's what Paul's saying. Not that those two things are different. He is essential as well. What he's saying is all of life orients around him, right? All of life flows from him and all of life is to be lived in worship to him. And so Paul takes two chapters to say, this is who Jesus is and this is what he's done for you. And then in Colossians 1, he says this. I want you to see, it'll be on the screen. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So our sin creates a separation between us and God, and and Paul describes it this way. He says we're alienated. This is a word that means to be shut out, to be cut off from. We use the word alien, right? It's like we're on a different planet from God, that we are hostile in mind. Our thoughts were opposed to him, and we were doing evil deeds. So not only... Has our sin separated us from relationship with God, but as a result, our entire person had become corrupt. So it starts inside of us, right? It's our minds are hostile, they're opposed towards God, and then our deeds, the things we do, follow the same path. And this is the life apart from the work of Christ. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. But God doesn't leave us there. Ephesians 2 says it this way, but God, being rich in mercy, While we were yet sinners, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. So Jesus dies to bring us from death to life, 
right? We use this word reconcile. We saw that in Colossians. Reconcile means to be brought back. And what happens from there, when we're brought back to God, reconciled to him, all that was broken inside of us starts to be put back together. We're brought near to God and we're transformed from the inside out. What was once alienated is now reconciled. It's brought near. And this is what I want you to grab onto. It's the nearness to God that changes us. It's nearness to God that begins to change us from the inside out. And this is where Paul is gonna take us in Colossians chapter three. Look at this real quick, verse one. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. The first thing we see here is this conditional statement. Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, then here is what you need to do. Right, his point is if you've been made alive, if you've been reconciled, if you've been brought near, then here is how your life should look different. And he says two things that we should seek and set, right? Seek the things that are above and set our minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. And so here's what you need to know before we move on and go any further in this conversation. The transformation of the Christian life is inside out, not outside in. So many of us believe that if God's going to accept us, if God is going to love us, which is an internal reality, we have to do all of these external things to get us to that place. We think the only way to get near to God is for us to change the outside. We think it's outside in, but the Bible teaches the opposite. We just read it. We're all far off. We're dead in our sins. And instead of us doing something to clean ourselves up, to get us back to God, God steps in when we're far off. He reconciles us, right? He brings us near being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. So where does that start? It starts with God's love, right? He made us alive. It's his richness of his mercy that initiates reconciliation, which means this, the only reason why any of us are ever near to God is because he came all the way to us. Jesus brings us near and that changes every single thing about us from the inside out. And so Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ then, and we covered this last week, look up where Jesus is. If you've been raised with him, then get your eyes on him, your eyes off of you and all the things that you need to do in order to earn his love and approval. And you get your eyes on him, the one who says you are already entirely accepted. The one who says you are already completely loved. We spent a whole lot of time on that last week. And so if you missed it, you can go back and listen or watch it online. But the point is this, if you've been raised with Christ, your life should look different. It should. Jesus has brought you near. God is changing you from the inside out. So we look up and we need to, and here's the second thing, we need to look in. Right, this is the way that God changes us. He changes the way that we now see ourselves. Look at verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So Paul starts to describe, here's how your life will look different. And he uses this phrase of putting off and putting on. We said last week, this is a word that can literally be translated to get dressed. And the idea is that people who are dead don't wear the same things that alive people wear, okay? 
So in verse seven, he says, you used to walk in these, right? You used to wear this type of clothing when you were, the Bible says, in them, but now you must put them all away. It's saying, verse three, your life is hidden with Christ in God and those old clothes aren't gonna work anymore. So take them off. And there's a tension that actually comes in here because this isn't something we can do on our own strength. Verse nine says this, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says we are being renewed, which means this is happening to us. It's not something we do for ourselves. He goes on to say that we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. So as we learn and grow and understand in our minds who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us, it's then that we understand that we've been brought near to God and he transforms us from the inside out. But we're not passive in this. We're not passive in this because we're not still dead, right? He's made us alive in Christ. And so he says, look to him, look up and look in. And what he means there is you look inside your heart and you see what's there that is inconsistent with who God says you are now. And you put it to death, you put it off. But in verse five, he actually uses that language, that stronger language, not just take it off, but put to death what is earthly in you. And we said last week what this means, that you would be proactive to identify the things in your life that are sinful, that are earthly, right? That come from the culture and the world around you. Rather from the king of God, you, or kingdom of God, you would identify those things and you would be proactive to choke the life out of them so that they no longer have power or control over you. Maybe this will help. Um, I've been a parent for a dad for, om- for almost four years now, um, which means that in the course of those four years, I've had my fair share of dad wins and dad fails, okay? So here's a fail to encourage you this morning in your journey of parenting. My oldest son, his name is Zeke. He's our early riser. And so this summer we were at the beach and we're staying at this house that had this, this cool sitting room off the, uh, off the kitchen with a little TV in it and Zeke wakes up early and so he and I are down there. My wife and I alternated. So like, you take him this morning, I'll get him. It's vacation, right? So we're just kind of uh, parenting together. Good job, high five. Um, anyways, so he and I are down there. We're having breakfast together and he wanted to watch TV. It's like six in the morning. I'm like, it's vacation, why not? You know, so I don't know the channels down there. So I'm just flipping through till we find something he wants to watch. And we come across this. The first thing he wanted to see was this little dog. Okay, this little brown dog. Um, and he's running around playing in the yard with his family. And, uh, and so um, it's funny because before he could talk, when he saw a little dog like that, he would meow at it because he thought it was a cat, right? Because we have big dogs and that made me really proud as a dad. Um, that was a dad win. This is a dad fail. So this show um, came on a little chihuahua named Brownie, okay? He's got a sweater on. He's playing around in the front yard with his family. He's like, oh, doggy, you know? And so at first I'm thinking, this is a great show. And then all of a sudden we find out that Brownie's sick, okay? So it's a show called Vet Life. Never seen it before, haven't seen it since. I assumed it was a feel-good story, all right? I, we're gonna see Brownie make a turn for the better. It's gonna be amazing. We're gonna have this heartwarming moment, he and I, 6.10 in the morning. Um, what became very clear pretty quickly was that Brownie wasn't gonna make it, all right? So when I turned the channel, we saw Brownie in a cage, weak, trembling, sweater on, blanket over, like trying to feed it uh, food and like water with a bottle, okay? I'm like, we gotta get out of here, okay? Turn the channel. As soon as I turn the channel, there's this tree. It's like a tree in Africa in the middle of the safari. And I'm like, man, what, why are they showing a tree? And then they zoom in a little bit and there's a leopard in there, okay? And so um, I go, Zeke, look at the leopard, right? And he goes, no, dad, it's a cheetah. And it wasn't. I let that slide though, because I wanted him to forget about Brownie. And, 
All of a sudden, the tree, the leopard, the camera pans down, the leopard jumps out of the tree, grabs an antelope by the throat and drags it back up, <laughs> back up onto the branch. So I kid you not, when the, the course of three minutes, both of those things happened, so I turned the TV off and we went outside, okay? <laughs> Dad fail, but here's the point. The Bible is saying that the sin that in us, that's in us is not some little brown dog, right? It's a leopard. It's not this weak, frail thing that's completely under control in its cage. It's stronger than you ever realize, and you probably don't even realize it's there, but it knows where you are. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and this is why Paul says, put it to death. Right, which means that you need to get serious about the sin that's in you because it has a plan to destroy your life. And now in Christ, sin has been defeated. Right, it no longer has power over your life eternally. Jesus has come to overcome that enemy once and for all on the cross, but we still have an enemy that's prowling around like a lion. And Jesus says in John 10, he's a thief, that he intends to steal, to kill, and destroy And so in Christ, we are eternally secure. We've been given this new identity and there will come a day, the Bible says, where Christ will return and our enemy will be no more. But for now, he's a lion. He's a thief. The Bible calls him an accuser, the deceiver, right? He's constantly working to deceive you into thinking that there are things and people in this world that can satisfy you in ways that Jesus can't. And he's an accuser. He wants to steal your identity and wants you to believe that there is no way that Jesus could possibly love you. And so you get lies that pop into your head, right? Accusations that say, hey, you're too far gone. You're too dirty. You've done too much. You don't deserve God's love. That's the accuser. And Paul's point is that anything that gets in the way of you beholding the true beauty of Jesus, you put it to death. You quit playing around with it like you have it under control, like you could stop at any time because it's not a pet, it's a predator. It's prowling around, plotting its attack, waiting for you to let your guard down so it can make its move. And historically what happens is we make one of two different errors when it comes to our sin. We either don't take it serious at all, meaning we never look inside of us because we think, what's the big deal? Man, I'm loved by God, right? I've been reconciled, I've been forgiven, and so why can't I have a little fun now and again? We think that, don't we? What could it hurt? Or the second error we make is that we do take our sin serious. We look inside of our hearts and we get overwhelmed with guilt and shame about what we see there and we get stuck. We try to fight our way out on our own. And Paul's gonna say neither one of those is ever gonna work. We have to look in, but we do that through the power of the cross and we continue to look up. It's not a linear process, guys. It's not we look up once and then now we move on. It's not we look to Jesus once for salvation and now if we wanna grow and mature, it's up to us. No, we continue to come back to him because as we said before, Jesus is central to all of life. This is why he says in verse 11, here in Christ, there is no Greek and Jew. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he is in all. And he's not saying that there aren't things about you that make up who you are. What he's saying is there is no external criteria that can make you more or less a part of Jesus. No ethnic criteria, he says Greek or Jew. No religious criteria, he says circumcised or uncircumcised, and he goes on, he says there's no socioeconomic criteria, no social or cultural criteria, but Christ is all and he is all and in all. What that means is, it doesn't matter where you come from, 
whether or not you grew up in church, what your parents did, what you did in the past, or how much money you have. If you are in Christ, that is your ultimate identity. You belong to God. And so with courage, through the power of the cross, we look in, but we don't get stuck there in self-loathing because that is not who we are. It's who we were, but that's not who we are now. And he gives us these two lists as examples of things that we should put off and put on, one in verse five and one in verse eight. And these lists aren't intended to be exhaustive for us. It's not saying, hey, if you put these things off, then you're good. That's not what he's saying. These are specific examples of a deeper reality. Here's what I mean. In Matthew 22, there's some Pharisees who are, or says the Bible says these Pharisees are asking Jesus questions, trying to test him. And they ask him a question, say, hey, what's the greatest of the law? The greatest commandment. And Jesus says the what of the Christian life could be summed up this way, that you love your God and that you love your neighbor. And so when Paul says to the Colossians, this is what you need to put to death in your life, he's gonna give them two categories, right? And the first one is a list of things that describes the unraveling of a relationship and nearness to God. That's verse five. And the next list is a, is a description of the unraveling of a relationship and nearness to the people around us. It says the, the what of the Christian life is love God, love neighbor. And so Paul, as he's describing this, he says, these are the things that prove that you are being, you're separate from God. And these are the things that prove that you're separate from one another, but you've been reconciled. Put these things off. That's what he's saying. He starts with sexual immorality. In verse five, this is a word, the Greek word porneia, right? It's where we get our word pornography. But it's kind of for them, it's a junk drawer word. It kind of means everything that is sexual, immorality that is outside the bounds or the parameters of what God has designed for it to exist. So just so we're on the same page, this is a summary for another day, but the boundaries that God has lined out for sexual activity is in the covenant marriage. One man, one woman who have put their I do and said, I'm in with you committed to you no matter what, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And so this would include, porneo would include for us everything from looking at explicit images on your device to sleeping with someone who you're not married to all the way to cheating on your spouse and everywhere in between. And Paul says where that exists in you, you put it to death. Be proactive to choke the life out of it, which again means quit playing with it. Quit tiptoeing around it, seeing how close you can get to it without getting bit. It's not brownie. It's a predator. And so he says sexual morality, but then he says impurity. This is moral corruption outside of sexual immorality, right? This is sneaking around. This is you cheating on tests. This is fudging the numbers at work, right? This is the opposite of integrity. And then he says passion and evil desire which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be passionate or have desires, it's that we shouldn't allow those things to dictate what we do and how we live our lives. In Philippians three, Paul says something very similar. He says that those who seek the things of the earth, he says their God, lowercase g, God is their belly, which means it's their appetite, is their God. That they are completely driven by whatever craving they have in the moment. This is opposite of being self-controlled. And so he ends this section by saying, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. And this word covetousness means greed, right? It's idolatry because when we covet, what we are declaring about God is we know best, more than him, what will satisfy us and bring us happiness in the world. We say, I need that thing and I don't have it. And I know what's best for me, so I'm gonna go get it. You see how these are the outward effects of an internal reality, the unraveling 
of a relationship and nearness to God. And then he moves to unraveling a relationship with the people around us. These things are pretty self-explanatory. He says things like anger, wrath, slander, right? And what he's saying is nearness to God changes everything. Not only does Christ reconcile us to himself, but he reconciles us to one another. And last week, I used this illustration of sin being like weeds, right? The way that we get rid of sin is not to mow over it, but we have to pull it up by the root. So how do we do that? Let me give you an example from this list. Verse nine says, do not lie to one another. And I picked this one because this is something we all can identify with. We've all have either done this or we do it. And if, we, if you would say that you don't do it now, you're probably a liar, okay? So this is how this brings it, brings it back into us. We, whether you're six years old or you're 60 years old, we all do this, right? Yesterday, I asked Zeke, he's three. I watched him do this. I said, hey buddy, did you just wipe that booger on the wall? He goes, no. I go, I saw you do it, son. Did you, did you wipe the booger on the wall? No, it was Brooksy. That's my younger son, okay? So we all do this, right? And we don't even feel bad about it, right? Hey, did you read that email I sent you? Yeah, sure did. Hadn't got a chance to reply yet, right? We don't even feel bad, we lie. And really we do it for a number of reasons. But pretty much it boils down to this. We lie to get something we think we need or something we want. That can be to get someone to like us, that can be to get a promotion at work, right? It could be whatever. So how do we pull it up by the root? Well, the Bible says that to put off sin, we need to confess and repent. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, made whole, complete, brought near to God, brought near to one another. So confession is looking in, but then it's being honest about what you see there with the people around you and with God. But confession alone isn't enough. Confession is a good first step, but that's just pointing the weeds out in your front yard. But if you have no intention of getting rid of them, it's not gonna do you any good. I'm sitting here saying, hey, look at these weeds. I got these weeds. Like, what are you gonna do about it? So we need to confess, but we also need to repent. That means to turn away from, right? It means that we create distance between us and sin and we don't keep doing it over and over and over again. And isn't this where most of us get stuck? The reason why we confess and repent of, is because we confess and repent of the sin, the external reality, and not the sin under the sin, the internal reality. Here's what I mean. When we lie, we can confess it this way. God, I lied. I shouldn't have done that. I'm gonna do my best not to do it again. That's mowing the weeds. That's leaving the root of it completely intact. So what's the root? Well, you need to ask yourself a question like this. Well, why did I lie? I lied because I was afraid that if my parents knew the truth about me, that they wouldn't let me have my phone anymore. Or I lied because if my parents found out, they wouldn't let me hang out with this group of friends or they wouldn't let me get, have the thing that I think I need, right? Or I lied because I was afraid that if my boss found out what I did, she would not consider me for that appro- uh, promotion anymore. We lie to keep something we want and that's the root That's the sin under the sin. That's the root of the lie. It's this, that I was worshiping other people's acceptance of me over God's acceptance of me and who he says I am. Or maybe it's pride and idolatry. I lied because I thought I knew better than God how to govern my life. I knew what would bring me happiness and satisfaction in a way that he didn't know how. That's the root, right? The sin under the sin. This is what we need to repent of. We pull it up by the root and we plant the gospel in its place. And so next time you're tempted to lie, you remember that the acceptance that I want cannot be found in any human being. 
It can only be found in Jesus. And I can trust him with telling the truth about what I am and what I've done because I don't have to lie and pretend that I'm someone I'm not to impress the people around me because verse three, my life is hidden with Christ in God. He says I'm no longer a slave to sin, right? I am a child of God. This is how this works. We pull it up by the root and we plant the gospel in its place and it changes us from the inside out. And this works down the list. So maybe you got real nervous earlier when I started talking about sexual morality. That's just a good test for you. If you get real nervous when a preacher starts talking about something, you need to check your heart there. Maybe that's you. You need to confess and repent, not of what you've done, but why you did it. Yes, what you've done, but also why you did it. Well, I knew that God said I shouldn't do this thing, but I really wanted it. That's why most of us do it. I believed in that moment, I knew better than God. It's the same way for everything, all the way down the list, anger, wrath, malice, right? We can apply the same thing. All of these are external effects of an internal reality. So we put off the old self and we put on the new. And here's what Paul says we put on. Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put this on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we look up and we look in and we look around. This is the next way that God changes us. Not only does he change the way we see ourselves, he changes the way we see the people around us. Did you notice that every single thing on this list that you're supposed to put on is impossible to do by yourself? You can't be compassionate unless there is someone in your life to be compassionate to. You can't be kind or show humility by yourself on the couch. And I love that Colossians 3 goes here because his point is this, that growth in Christ, sanctification, maturing in your faith is a community project. And Paul's saying that being raised with Christ changes us. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see the people around us. And how did he start this? Before, hey, this is what you put on. What does he call them? Look at verse 12. Chosen, holy, beloved. What's he saying? Before you've done any of this, no matter how compassionate you are, no matter how kind you are, no matter how loving or forgiving you are, you're chosen. God has chosen you, God has reconciled you, he's brought you near, he's placed his love on you in his son Jesus and he has given you a new identity. We are reconciled to God and when we're reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another. And God takes a bunch of individuals, he draws them near and he forms a people called the church. And what Colossians three is saying is the church, not a building, it's the people, it's the place where God moves you from information to transformation. That God moves you from knowing some things that are true about God to having those truths implanted in your life so deep that it changes you from the inside out. And one of the primary ways we're gonna grow is in and through our relationships with one another. This is why we're always talking about community, why it's so important for you to get in a community group because there is a difference in being in community where you're committed to one another and then having Christian friends. There's a difference between those two things. Because Christian friendships aren't gonna put up with verses 12 to 14. Look back at it. Compassion. When do we need to be compassionate? 
when someone is needy around us and oftentimes in a way that inconveniences us? When do we need to forgive? When someone's wronged us, when they've harmed us? What about patience? That's for when people get on your nerves. That's what he's saying. Christian friendships don't last through stuff like that. What happens is we move on and we find people who require less from us, don't we? We find people who like us better, who are more like us and aren't gonna press us or or ask us to be different. Paul says, this is the new uniform. This is what should set us apart as Christians, that we would be humble, that we would be patient, that we would be kind and compassionate, forgiving. Let me try to bring this out of the clouds for us and bring it down into your life. The Bible is talking about the way that you interact with the people that you like in your life and your annoying neighbor. The Bible is talking about the way that you interact with your friends and the people you're like, man, I can't wait to hang out with them and the girl at work or in your class who you can't stand. And we could go on and on, right? Your parents, your in-laws, your kids sometimes. This is talking about all of our life. This is the new uniform that we should be putting on daily. So how do we do it? Because it's not something you can do on your own. You ever just tried to be more compassionate? I wanna care more about people. I have for eight years now since I've been married and it doesn't work, okay? You can ask my wife, she'll confirm. Compassion is not high on my list there. But where does it come from? We can't just make it happen. Where does it come from? Verse 13, he says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's the how. He says our source of, the, the source for us, for of our forgiveness and our compassion and kindness is not that those people deserve it from us. He goes as far to mention the people who are complaining about us. Right? This is hard enough for people that we actually like but we don't live this way because people deserve it from us. We live this way because we have received love and forgiveness and compassion and kindness from God when we didn't deserve it. That's the motivation for it. That's the source that's gonna bear this fruit in our lives because he's brought us near and that changes everything. I'm not gonna be kind because I'm just gonna make it happen. I'm gonna be kind because I'm gonna look to Jesus and I'm gonna see that he has extended more kindness to me than I ever could possibly deserve and that's gonna change me from the inside out. I'm gonna extend that love and forgiveness to the people around me. Basically, he's bringing it full circle. He's saying it comes as we look up, right? We look to Jesus and our hearts and our minds are reoriented around him instead of ourselves, And Paul knows that this is hard. This will be difficult. And so he's gonna offer us some encouragement here. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul offers us a little diagnostic test that we can run in our lives to see how we're doing in this. What stood out in those three verses that we heard over and over again? It's the idea of thankfulness, right? Three times in as many verses, he says something about being thankful. And the reason why is because gratitude is one of the primary indicators that we have been brought near to God and he's changing us from the inside out. So consider your own life right now. I'm gonna ask you a couple questions. What are you most aware of? 
the things you don't have or all that God has given you in Christ? It's a little check engine light for you. Is it easier for you to be grateful for what God has done in your life or to grumble about what he hasn't done? In verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. I legitimately believe that this verse has the power to transform your life in our church, if we would believe it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Paul's making a connection here between gratitude and an internal peace that comes from looking up to Jesus. And he says, let it rule. This word rule means act as umpire. That the peace of Christ would be the governing authority in our life. That everything we do or say or think would be filtered through this peace of Christ. And so what is the peace of Christ? In, in John 20, Jesus had died and been on a cross for our sins, been buried, put in a tomb, and he had resurrected and he had only revealed himself so far to Mary Magdalene. And so his disciples who had threw, threw everything down to follow Jesus for years were freaking out. And the Bible says they were hiding in their homes behind locked doors. And then all of a sudden Jesus appears with them. And he says, peace be with you. In verse 20 of John 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It's the proof, right? He goes, I brought you near. You can see it in my hands, I brought you near. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. I think when it, when it says they were glad when they saw the Lord, that's an understatement. Other translations say they rejoiced exceedingly. And so in a moment, in a moment, all of their worry and their fear and their anxiety vanishes. Why? Because they saw Jesus. Because they knew he was who he said he was, that he had done for them what he said he was gonna do, that he was gonna lay his life down to bring them near. And the same thing is true for us when we look and we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts because when you look to Jesus, you realize that you have received more love and compassion and forgiveness and kindness from God than you could ever possibly deserve and that changes you. And all of a sudden you're thankful and the anger that's inside of you, it turns to patience when you see Jesus because your perspective shifts and you no longer see the world through this lens of who do you think you are and it becomes who am I? that the God of the universe would lay his life down for me, changes us from the inside out. Look at verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I think this means a few things for us. I'm gonna hit the first one quick because we talk about it all the time, but it absolutely means that if we wanna see Jesus, if we wanna put our sin off, if we wanna be proactive about identifying what's in us and putting it to death, then we absolutely have to be reading our Bibles. We do. Not to check a box. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which means we don't need to just be reading it. This word dwell, the root of that is the Greek word oikos. It's where we get our word house. That the word of Christ would be alive in us, that it would live in us. So if we're, when we're in it, we feel like we're home. If we're going vacation, no matter how great it is, when you come home, you just feel at peace. It would be home in the word. 
And if we're gone too, too long, we begin to feel homesick, that it would dwell in us, transforming us from the inside out, changing us the way we see ourselves, the way we see the people around us. And he says this, teaching and admonishing one another. Again, the place that God works this out in us is the church. It's in the context of community where we have committed to help a group of people follow Jesus and we're expecting the same thing from them. Where we're not only willing to teach and admonish, but we're willing to be taught and admonished. A lot of people wanna teach. A lot of people wanna say, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to fix it. But are we courageous enough to let other people teach and admonish us? That's what it means to be the church. These two words are two sides of the same coin. Teach is positive correction, it's positive instruction. Admonishment is negative correction and instruction. And what do we do when most of us receive negative correction? We go find some other people who can make us feel good about ourselves. Ah, that's not true about you. He said, what, I can't believe that. That's not true. You're not angry. You just get mad every once in a while, right? We go find other people who aren't gonna expect as much out of us, who are gonna love us for who we are. But God has given us the church to help us become who he says we are. Not who we are. We're alienated, hostile in mind, but God, being rich in mercy, while we were yet sinners, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ. Colossians says this should lead us into singing and thankful hearts to know that we're not on our own. That not only has God not abandoned us and left us to figure it out, but he surrounded us with people to help us, to remind us to look up. And one of the ways we do that is we sing together. Right, it's not just what we do before the guy preaches, right? There's a purpose to it, a theological purpose. There's over 50 commands in the scriptures for the people of God to sing to him. And this is not because he needs to hear from us how great he is. It's because we need to hear from each other how great he is. That's what we're doing as we're proclaiming the truth about who God is and what he's done. Something happens, right? I don't know what it is, but the Holy Spirit does something when we're singing. It reminds us that we're not the point, that he is. Right, it moves us from this place we said before, this posture of living our lives that says, who do you think you are? How could you do that to me? Don't you know who I am? And it moves us from that to who am I? That the God of the universe would choose me. Who am I that the God of the universe would be patient with me and be compassionate to me and be kind to me? And who am I that the God of the universe would love me? So we look up and we look in and we look around. God changes us when we see Jesus from the inside out. He changes the way we see ourselves. He changes the way we see the people around us. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna sing and respond with glad hearts to the good news of the gospel. Father, thank you. That it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. That means it's not up to us to prove our worth to you. You've already laid your life down for us. You've already said we matter. God, would you help us? By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning to see Jesus? 
to believe that we're loved by him, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. Would you help us? Set us free from thinking the world owes us something. Reorient our hearts around who you are. Help us to sing this morning, to remember we're loved by God in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.